Welcome to a University of Bath IPR policy podcast. Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to, day, to today's launch event um, hosted by the University of Bath Institute for Policy Research. Thank you for joining us online this morning. My name is Nick Pierce, and I'm the director of the IPR. Um, today, we're delighted to launch a, a new report, Couples Navigating Work, Care and Universal Credit, the final report of a three-year longitudinal qualitative research project funded by the Economic and Social Research Council. And as we all know, universal credit uh, is a fundamental reform of uh, working age means tested benefits bringing together uh, a number of benefits and in the first stages of the rollout of universal credit uh, it, it principally involved single people meaning that thus far we know much less about the experience of couples in universal credit with or without dependent children and this study the findings of which we will now uh, publish today uh, is the first independent research to focus on couples uh, within this context of the universal credit rollout led by our colleagues Rita Griffiths, Marsha Wood, Jane Miller and the University of Oxford's Fran Bennett. Uh, it's been a significant uh, piece of work and we're delighted to be able to share its key findings with you. Um, I'm just going to say a little bit by way of introduction to the event. Uh, joining us to discuss the findings uh, is Rita Griffiths. Now Rita is hot-footing it to join us having given evidence this morning to the uh, Work and Pension Select Committee on Universal Credit and Child Care. Um, uh, we're hoping she'll be able to join us soon. She's um, been with us at the Institute since 2016, an independent researcher for many years before that, done a lot of work with the Department of Work and Pensions. Um, and uh, whilst we're waiting for Rita, uh, our colleague Marsha Wood uh, will kick us off with the presentations. Marsha, uh, a researcher at the um, uh, Institute for Policy Research, also been uh, uh, conducting the research for this project. So Marsha will uh, hold the fort as it were, uh, whilst Rita comes back from the Select Committee. Uh, then we have Fran Bennett, uh, Associate Fellow at the Department of Social Policy and Intervention at the University uh, of Oxford, also an independent consultant and written, written extensively on social security for a number of different bodies, the UK government, the Child Poverty Action Group and many others. Um, so we're delighted to have Fran with us today, who's also been um, involved in the, in, the, in the research project with us. Um, and then following their presentations, we're going to hear reflections from Ryan Shorthouse and Kate Summers. Uh, Ryan is the founder and chief executive of Bright Blue. Uh, he's a writer, a thinker, an entrepreneur. Uh, many of his ideas have been taken up by the UK government uh, in, in the last decade. And uh, he and I are also fellow trustees on the Early Intervention Foundation. So really pleased to have him here today. And then Kate Summers, who's a, a, post, a British Academy postdoctoral fellow at the London School of Economics and Political Science, where she's developing new qualitative methods to study social security policy. And her research is concerned with the experiences and perceptions of poverty economic inequality and related social policies. So great to have you with us as well, Kate. Um, and uh, Jane Miller, um, I also want to just to say, Jane, you can see in the screen there, J Jane, you know, hugely distinguished social policy researcher, as everybody knows, uh, emeritus with the Institute for Policy Research now, uh, been um, uh, the principal investigator on this project. And it's great to have Jane with us as well today. So welcome, Jane. Um, I'm now going to hand over to, um, Marsha, just in a little bit, I'll just do a little bit of housekeeping. Um, please note that if you're following this, your cameras and microphones will remain switched off. And if you've got a question, please submit it via the Q&A function. And then at the end of the session, we'll aggregate all those and we'll try to respond to as many as we can. So we'll have plenty of opportunity for debate. Uh, the session is being recorded. Um, so filming and photography is taking place and subject to any technical questions, we will make it online available as a podcast or video uh, at a later date. And if you're on social media, please do tag us at University of Bath, Uni of Bath IPR. So that's probably enough for me. And I'm now going to hand over to Marsha to 
uh, begin the presentation. Um, and perhaps at some point we'll be joined by Rita as she comes back from the select committee. But to start with, I'll hand over to you, Marsha. Okay, thank you. Okay, so yeah, I'll um, kick off instead of Rita and then I'm sure she'll appear some point soon. Um, so yeah, our study is about couples claiming universal credit, navigating work and care. And um, so I'm gonna start off talking a bit about the research project and the findings. Um, and then, as I said, Rita will, will come along too. And um, then Fran will give a reflection um, on, on the policy implications. Um, so yes, as many of you will know, one of the key aims of universal credit is to encourage and support employment through financial incentives and other supports. So um, in our research, our key aim was exploring, as Nick mentioned, specifically how couples claiming universal credit with, um, um, without children, both in and out of work, how they make decisions about household, money, work and care. And um, we're interested in focusing on couples in particular because of the kind of slightly different way that they can experience universal credits with the, um, the single payments um, coming into both partners as a couple jointly and how the um, actions of say one partner in a couple can affect um, how, how both partners in the couple experience universal credit around things like conditionality. Um, so our study was a three-year qualitative and longitudinal research project and we had two waves of interviews in England and in Scotland and um, our study took place firstly sort of before COVID when we did our first set of interviews and then our second wave of interviews occurred during COVID. So um, our first phase interviews took place in late 2018 and early 2019. And then we did um, 123 face-to-face -face interviews with 90 people from 53 households. So um, we did individual interviews with each partner in a couple and then with as many as we possibly could, we also did a joint interview. And um, those, the focus on um, our report from that phase, which was published in June 2020, was on household money and universal credit payment issues. And then in phase two, so for the second phase of our interviews, when we interviewed um, people again in late 2020, we managed to interview 63 of those 90 participants and those interviews we did over the telephone because of COVID um, and those were people were from 39 households and it's those uh, findings that we're publishing today in our report. So overall across both phases of the research we had um, quite a lot of interview material, we had 186 interviews and, and transcripts which we analysed. Okay so just to say a bit more about our phase two sample, so for 39 households 28 were still in couples um, when we interviewed them at phase two. So that's 24 who had dependent children and four who didn't have dependent children. Um, and six were lone parents and five were single people. We should say that some of those um, lone parents and single people had actually become lone parents and single people before we interviewed them at phase one, but they had previously been in couples. So they had that experience. So um, there was quite a lot of change which occurred between the two two phases of our interviews. So nine babies were born to eight couples and uh, three participants were also pregnant um, when we interviewed them at phase two. Seven couples had split up of whom two got back together again with the same partner. Uh, and unfortunately, one of our participants had died. So um, of, our, of our 39 uh, households, 23 had at least one partner in work at phase two, um, 34 were still receiving universal credit and all have been um, universal credit claimants for at least two years and some for as many as five years 
So we did also have a look at those who, who didn't participate in our participate in our second phase of field work um, and we did notice that they were sort of generally facing the more more complex issues so that's just something worth noting so um, just to talk a bit about the analysis and findings so it's a longitudinal study as i've mentioned and we structured our findings um, according to the employment employment status at or in a few cases before our first phase of interviews so um we, 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 we grouped everyone into their sort of earner status as they were at the initial point when we, when we first interviewed or for a few just before that. So we had 10 two earner households, 13 one earner households and 16 no earner households. And then we used an in-depth sort of narrative case summary approach. So we, based on the first person accounts using all the interview transcripts, we explored specific issues, but we kind of looked at, looked at how people's situations were changing over time and we wrote some narrative case summaries. And then we um, grouped, you know, looked at the issues in more detail. So the key things we were trying to explore were what employment transitions did people experience over time? What work care decisions and arrangements they made and why? And what influence universal did main, universal credits main policy levers have, such as the work allowance, the sixty three percent taper, which was what was in operation when we were doing our, our field work, the childcare cost element, conditionality regime, and employment support. And then we explored how well the assumptions underlying universal credits theory of behaviour change fit the reality of people's lives. In this slide, we just look at the sort of employment, the key employment transitions for the for the households um, that we interviewed. So, of the sixteen households that had no owner at the start, twelve still had no one in paid work at phase two, and um, and some have become single owner households. Sorry, I'm slightly covering that that number there. Yeah, so four had become single owner households, and then of the thirteen with one earner, seven were still one owner couples, and three had become two owner couples. One had no earner and two had split up and formed two separate households. And then of the 10 with two earners, six couples still had two earners. One had become a one earner, one had become a no earner couple, and one had split up and formed two separate one earner households. Okay, so um, if we start with our no earner couples, so um, it was one of our, our largest groups of, um, of couples in our research. And of course, there are... Um, there are good reasons why people aren't earning in universal credit and often that's because uh, people have disabilities or they have children with disabilities and they're not able to work so many of our uh, couples who uh, who weren't earning were either uh, looking after a partner who uh, who had a disability uh, or a mental health condition or they had a child who did and um, often there was no work conditionality for either member of the couple in, in this situation and generally speaking um it suited most couples, but not all. So in some cases, the caring partner who had no work conditionality um, would have actually liked to have uh, contact and support with a work coach, but wasn't able uh, to get it because neither partner um, had any work conditionality. So um, it's a kind of structural problem within the system in terms of contact and employment support that people get that we might want to discuss later. So for couples who um, um, who were in the intensive work search group, so couples with no earners, so unemployed couples um, who had no other source of income and had no uh, limited capacity for work, um, we found that these were the couples that struggled the most, um, not um, unexpectedly. Um, 
And here uh, it reflects findings, perhaps some of you um, saw the, um, the COVID realities um, presentation earlier in the week. Our findings very much support theirs, which is the income inadequacy, um, compounded often by um, uh, automated deductions within universal credit. Um, they feature strongly in the narratives of, of, um, of, a couple, of unemployed couples. Um, particularly uh, with, with children, and particularly affected were, were those um, who were impacted by the two-child limit, and also um, younger parents as well, and younger couples under the age of 25 who have a, a lower standard allowance. And of course, these kinds of issues about income inadequacy have been compounded by the loss of the £20 um, uplift. During our research, um, they actually still had it. So they were still struggling, even though they were in most cases, well, they were in all cases getting the £20 uplift. And often um, those um, who were required to undertake intensive job search often found it unproductive, the employment support was felt to be very generic, um, not tailored to their individual needs, although many people reported having a good relationship with a work coach, but um, the, the kind of support that they were offer, able to offer was fairly limited. We also find in this group that, that social services wasn't uncommon, um, that a few of the couples who were classified as having no dependent children actually had had children taken into the care system um, and in fact a couple um, without children who subsequently had a child had had that child removed by the time of our second phase re uh, research so um, having little or no furniture relying on food banks um, unable to heat the home properly all this reflects having to manage on a very low income, but of course it's also the sort of things that's likely to come to the attention of social services. Um, and, um, and so this was something that, um, that mothers in particular were really concerned about. It was a source of significant stress, the fear of having their children removed due to poor home circumstances. Okay, we could move on to the next slide, please, Sophie. Okay, so the findings for, for one earner couple. So, most one earner couples in this research had preschool age children. And so the primary driver of, of the kind of decisions that they were making around work and care arrangements was to ensure that they had one parent at home to look after them. In uh, very few cases, it was two part time earners, which I'll, I'll come on to later. But in the majority of cases, this was a, a choice that they'd made to look after for one parent to look after the children at home. That was also reflected by um, not wanting to use paid childcare. Um, so they often they just organised their, uh, their working lives around the fact that, um, that they wanted to minimise the use of paid childcare um, and so that one parent, parent was always available. Um, so generally speaking, this reflected a personal choice. Where, um, and also these are the kinds of findings that we find in research going back many years. But where our findings deviated from that research was that historically, this kind of uh, division of labor in uh, two parent families with, with one earner and one parent staying home was uh, often reflected a, a traditional um, division of, of uh, a gendered division of labor between um, uh, usually a male breadwinner and a female home carer. But actually we didn't find that in our research. We found that the decisions were reflecting more the pra practicalities of, um, of who can drive in the couple, um, who may be ill or disabled or not. And 
often just who finds a job first. Um, and so what we tended to find as well is that um, looking over a period of time is that who was the lead pair in a couple and who was the earner often um, switched between um, the members of a couple. Um, they weren't necessarily tied to those traditional um, roles. And something else that, that was apparent over time is that as people got to understand universal credit, um, um, and they understood how the, uh, the, the taper, which at the time of the research was 63%. This attended to kind of minimize rather than maximize the working hours that people did. Um, and that wasn't just the loss of entitlement to universal credit, but also the loss of entitlement to other means tested benefits. So for example, help with um, council tax support, uh, free school meals, prescriptions. Um, all these are impacted um, as, um, as earnings increase. And people found that difficult to manage, something I'll come on to um, in the next slide. Um, but something else that was very specific to couples, it, the fact that there's a single payment. So often um, higher earnings of one partner would reduce the amount of universal credit paid to the other. So it could actually um, have an impact on the distribution of income within the family, which sometimes set up um, unhelpful dynamics as well. And, and people making the choice um, perhaps not to work extra hours in order not to reduce their partner's earnings. Um, so we found with our one owner couples in terms of the conditionality regime that um, they were treated, even though many of them, um, I should have said, were actually working part time, they were treated generally with a fairly light touch. It should be said that um, during our second phase re research, um, the conditionality regime was affected by um, the loosening of the, um, the conditionality requirements as a result of the pandemic. So generally speaking, there was very little contact between uh, work coaches um, and claimants at this time. But even prior to that, we found that, um, that most couples who'd made a decision to have one earner, even when it was one part-time earner, were generally left to their own devices by work coaches. However, the, we did pick up on some fairly uh, variable and inconsistent treatment. So, Couples in very similar circumstances in terms of the earnings um, and the number of parents who are working were actually treated rather differently depending on uh, which part of the country they were in, but also by different work coaches as well. Um, and the other um, issue that we hit against was that some potential second earners, uh, because the high, higher earnings of their partner, they actually had no contact with the work coach again uh, and would have liked some. So we found that the conditionality regime was actually driving the kind of support and help that people were getting rather than necessarily the individual uh, needs and aspirations um, of the partners. Okay, so moving on to our two earner couples. Um, I should stress really that um, we did find some positives in the research. There weren't all difficulties, that, and there were some couples that did like universal credit, they liked the single payment. And one of the things that they particularly liked was the automatic top up to universal credit when wages drop. Of course, that's the reverse of how it was expected to impact on people. Um, but the fact that um, if wages drop due to um, sickness, for example, often people were in jobs that didn't pay, um, sick pay, so um, universal credit rising when wages dropped was actually very helpful to people, the fact that they didn't have to claim an additional benefit. And also, of course, the lower risk of overpayments and people mentioned compared with tax credits if they've been impacted on that previously. 
But we did find that the um, through all the narratives really of our two minor couples was the challenge of juggling work and care. And there was little evidence that we found that the help available within universal credit was actually um, helping them with um, with those challenges. So uh, something I've been speaking about to the Work and Pensions Committee this morning is just the um, the fact that the childcare uh, support offered uh, within universal credit we found to be very unwieldy um, for, um, for couples with children. Both parents, of course, have to work uh, in uh, two parent families if they're to access childcare help within universal credit. So um, the fact that payments um, had to be found upfront and reclaimed in arrears something the committee was very concerned about. But actually, we found with um, two earners who often had overcome this barrier, partly possibly because um, there were earnings, but um, often people did borrow the money from family. But actually it was the um, subjecting um, of entitlement to childcare help to a monthly means test. So, so the fact that uh, universal credit is tapered along with other elements, um, along with earnings, um, and the, the all-in-one nature of the payment. So it's really hard to separate out the childcare element within universal credit from any other help and support that they get. Um, this was particularly problematic. So just managing a payment that fluctuated month to month, it was very hard to predict in advance um, what help they would get with childcare. Um, actually um, left some uh, second earners who tended to be women in debt uh, because they weren't getting the help that they thought they might. Um, and some actually uh, we found reduced their hours or left jobs counter um, to the policy intent, just in order to stabilize their universal credit payment and to reduce the stress and um, of hassle of, of actually reclaiming their child costs um, monthly. Um, and then as children, um, as young as children became eligible for uh, the government's free childcare, so generally uh, three and four year olds, they tended to switch to the pre pre uh, free provision, which, uh, which they found much easier. There's higher awareness, much higher take up than the childcare element of universal credit. The other big finding uh, that I've alluded to is just the extent to which this super responsive mean testing with the universal credit. So every month, there is a monthly assessment and a means test. It was creating quite a lot of additional stress and burden. Again, having gendered effects tended to affect women more than men in couples because they tended to do more of the budgeting. They tended to do uh, more of the childcare arranging. And we also found that this sometimes followed through into couples' relationships. So um, it could create um, instability. Not all our couples stayed together. So the reasons why couples separate are very complex, um, but this was an added burden that could actually tip some couples over the edge and, and some did actually separate. Um, some people we found as well in order to uh, remove themselves from uh, the stress and burden is they actually did increase their hours um, as universal credit um, did um, intend, but often this involves significant trade-offs in terms of work-life balance. So earning more for these couples to take them out of eligibility for universal credit often meant that they were working long hours. And again, that could impact relationships, it impacted family time. So it didn't suit everybody. So we found that work behaviours were registered, but not necessarily as intended by um, policy. So the taper was uh, discouraging longer hours, particularly among second earners. Um, the, quality, the, the kind of work that people was doing was an added constraint because people weren't able simply to um, 
uh, work extra hours or do an extra shift. Often it was down to their employers to determine the kind of hours of work that they did. Um, and as we said, some did increase their earnings and leave universal credit, but more people reduced them or left jobs. And the main drivers here, um, which play to some of the assumptions underlying universal credit that I know Fran wants to talk about more, is just the extent to which um, people were concerned to reduce the amount of uncertainty. They wanted stability, they wanted reliability to know how much they had to budget every month. And so often their work behaviors um, were, uh, were influenced more by that than necessarily maximizing income. So I come to my final slide now. Thank you, Sophie. So what are our key, uh, key takeaways? So we found that the policy levers in universal credit, so the, the work allowance, the taper, the help with childcare costs, they were actually having a li fairly limited influence over the decisions couples or the arrangements couples were making about who worked, how many hours they worked. And often this work-life balance was more important to couples than maximizing household income. And that actually applied to working and non-working couples. Um, and to an extent, the pandemic has played into that. People are spending more time at home with their children are thinking, well, actually, maybe a simpler life uh, is, is preferable, especially when children are young. Um, always maximising household income when there are big trade-offs is perhaps not the best way forward. So... Um, the other key takeaway is the extent to which couples are affected differently and the different partners within a couple affected differently within universal credit. So we know that universal credit affects lone parents in a particular way. It was mainly designed for single claimants. And what we're finding is actually its, um, its impacts on couples um, are really quite different to uh, single claimants and lone parents. Um, and in this sense, there's perhaps overall a, a bit of a mismatch between how universal credit has been designed um, in order um, to change behaviour, how it thought it would change work behaviour, and how people are actually responding to it in practice. And it's suggesting in particular that a rethink is really needed, particularly if more mothers and couples are going to be uh, encouraged into work or to, to earn more, which is actually key to the, the success of universal credit. So at that point, I'm going to hand over to, um, to, uh, to Fran, who's going to talk more about those assumptions and the policy side of things. Thank you, Sophie, and thank you very much, Rita. Um, I'm just going to highlight a few reflections um, briefly, and that's for two reasons. Uh, one is that uh, some of the policy implications have already been raised by what Marsha and Rita have said, and we actually have two speakers giving responses shortly who may also do that. And the second is that this is not really a report about whether universal credit works or not. It's a report about whether the assumptions behind the design of universal credit appear to fit with our participants' lives and therefore their experience of and responses to universal credit. So we looked at key areas of concern that they had. Now, one of those was about financial incentives, uh, which have been talked about. And it's certainly true that some people appreciated the responsive nature of universal credit, in particular because that meant that there weren't any overpayments and uh, their uh, earnings were by and large reported automatically um, to uh, the government. But the monthly means test, as Rita has said, led to fluctuations in income, which were 
Um, one of the big uh, issues that we found for people, these were hard work, they were stressful, and they caused difficulties in budgeting. I mean, universal credit was intended to uh, make it clearer to people how they should budget. Um, and these, particularly for people in work, caused difficulties in budgeting. And uh, those were, of course, doubled for those people who had um, two, uh, two uh, members of the couple in work. And that makes it quite hard to see the direct line to claimant behaviour um, because of the fluctuations in income, which were going on for those people with earners. And in addition, the pattern of incentives in universal credit for couples doesn't really match what we know about who's more susceptible to incentives. So the research in the past has tended to show us that, quote, second earners in couples are more responsive and that uh, mothers with children, for example, are more responsive to whether they can get more or less um, in terms of their income in work. But of course, the pattern of incentives in universal credit, as people know, who've been debating it for a decade, um, was to facilitate um, single earner couples in particular, because the government's focus was workless households um, rather than individual earners. And so the pattern of incentives doesn't really match what we know uh, about um, how incentives work, if you like. And the other issue is that the uh, reduction in the taper to 55% and the increase in the work allowance by £500 a year, both of which um, happened after our research, um, will uh, mean that universal credit goes higher up the income scale. The um, extra income, of course, will be very much welcomed by people, but the increase in the work allowance in particular, because there's only one per couple, will tilt the balance further towards uh, one earner households within the universal credit system. So looking at other elements of the universal credit design, um, employment support and childcare are parts of those, um, uh, parts of that design. Um, and as Rita has said, some work coaches were certainly very helpful to claimants and that was very much appreciated. But the support that they could give was often quite limited and the support was uh, sometimes inconsistent. Uh, in terms of conditionality, um, one of the other issues about there being um, apparently less clear divisions of labour by gender than there have been in the past was that those people who did comment on the idea of nominating a lead carer uh, were not that keen on that. They'd said that isn't really how we work as a couple and there was no recognition within the conditionality regime of the non-lead carer's parenting role at all. Um, and therefore that was seen to be rather rigid in terms of how uh, couples work these days. And in relation to childcare, um, as came out very clearly in the oral evidence of the Work and Pensions Committee this morning, which I was listening to, the design appears to have been motivated more by a desire to avoid fraud and also overpayments, which wasn't mentioned so much this morning, rather than the kind of design that can best help claimants uh, get into work and get on in work, as was intended by Universal Credit. We also found that other factors were important in what couples did and why, uh, and not just the universal credit system. So one is lack of control over jobs and hours. In other words, the kind of employment that the couples uh, would go into um, meant that they couldn't necessarily just increase their hours 
um, uh, or increase their earnings um, when they desired to. And there were also other motivations for behavioral change, as has come out very clearly in what's been said so far, particularly related to how uh, the couple worked as a family uh, with their children. The fact that universal credit um, adjusted when earnings were lower and income was lower was appreciated by some people. So the, the upwards adjustment of universal credit when income was lower was certainly appreciated. And some people came off universal credit by working more. That's absolutely true. So clearly there was um, an effect in terms of people uh, becoming independent of benefit, which was, again, another huge um, motive behind the design of universal credit. But that was often because people wanted to leave universal credit itself. Um, they wanted to leave it because of what they found to be intrusiveness and the uh, impact of, um, uh, of the taper on their additional earnings and so on. And I think what these kinds of issues led us to discuss was whether the impact of the monthly means test, in other words, the fact that you got means tested at the end of every month in universal credit, had been sufficiently considered uh, when the design was thought up. And I think uh, you can guess that our answer was um, perhaps that had not been uh, sufficiently considered in the design. So the um, research also made us think more generally about how couples are treated within universal credit. And it's very interesting that the business case uh, for universal credit um, says that the preferred work hours that people want uh, are assumed to be possible in the business case. And the other thing that the business case said is that one partner's decisions on work and hours are assumed to be unaffected by the other partner's work and hours. Now, both of those things, uh, we would argue from our research, are rather heroic assumptions, to say the least. So the ways in which couples work are not necessarily taken into account sufficiently within the design of universal credit or the uh, aims which it wants to achieve. And it foregrounds household, not individual income. So the administrative earnings threshold and the conditionality earnings threshold, both of which um, are um, triggers for different uh, conditionalities within the universal credit scheme, um, are both uh, household uh, thresholds as well as individual thresholds, for example. So what um, happens to one partner's earnings uh, can affect the other partner's conditionality uh, very clearly. There has been certainly a shift from a focus on workless households, which I talked about as being an initial motivator behind universal credit, to the current focus, which is more on in-work progression. And that would suggest that there's less of a focus on the household and more of a focus on the individual now. I think we would argue that if that is to be the case, there is an argument to review the incentives and how they affect second earners in particular, and the conditionality rules and how those work for couples in particular. And in terms of just generally policy areas to consider, uh, we would therefore think that especially for those with no other income, the adequacy of universal credit remains key. It's key for everybody, but particularly for those who don't have other income as well. For those who have one or two earners, it appears to us that security is often seen as more important than the super responsiveness 
of universal credit, which happens every month. The design issues that we've picked out as of key concern are the way in which the reimbursement of childcare costs works in universal credit and the monthly means test, as I've just said. We would also think that there's a difficulty in dividing the job seeker and the lead carer roles rigidly these days and the um, evidence we have points to the need for more flexibility in that, as well as, I should say, in terms of carer and cared for roles um, uh, when it comes to people who are disabled um, or um, uh, have disabilities because of old age. Um, and wider policy issues, in conclusion, are also relevant. So we are not going to solve all the problems that our uh, couples experienced um, just through the universal credit system itself. Um, there's also, in particular, the quality of work, um, the accessibility of transport to the kinds of work that people got, um, and so on. So this is a, um, a policy area um, which is wider than just um, uh, universal credit, wider than just the benefit system more generally, and also includes uh, the labour market and the nature of that, um, and our public services, including transport. Thank you very much. Thank you very much indeed um, to Fran and to um, Rita and to Marsha for the presentation of the research and some of the questions it raises, some really important policy issues there raised by uh, Fran at the end. And I suppose overall, you know, one might take from this research is rather like the sort of famous um, uh, words of James Scott, the, the problems of seeing like a state that the, um, you know, the, the, the design principles, the ways in which universal credit has been configured and implemented at, at considerable variance from the experience, uh, the, the needs, the desires, the ambitions of uh, couples in receipt of, the, of universal credit and very specific ways in which that's happening that come from this research. So um, we're going to now have um, some responses, first from uh, Ryan Shorthouse and, and then Kate Summers, and then we'll open up to debate. We've got some questions already in the chat, but Ryan, if I can pass to you, please, Ryan. Great, thank you. Uh, and it's good to be joining this session. I'm actually at the British Academy at a bright blue conference at the moment, uh, and I'm just between sessions. Uh, and I wanted to accept um, this invitation because it's, it's really good work. Um, so, uh, like I say, I think the work really adds to and strengthens the evidence base, which has been emerging around the impact of universal credit. And I, what I want to do now is just zoom out a bit and think about some of the political implications of, of, of the research. I think the first thing to note is that in recent times, there has been uh, a shift in opinion on universal credit, that it's had a good pandemic. It's delivered quite well during the pandemic, uh, and, and that sort of paints how policymakers, decision makers, journalists see universal credit. They broadly see it as working, um, and as the number of people uh, came on to uh, universal credit uh, during the pandemic accelerated quite substantially, it coped, uh, and DWP as, as an organisation coped uh, as well. Uh, and, you know, we've done some work at Bright Blue, which just showed the level of increase, particularly during the first year of the pandemic, of the number of people coming onto UC as a result, not only of unemployment, but reduced income or reduced hours as a result of the lockdown measures that, that were put in place. Um, and, you know, London in particular, but also what you might call the government's left behind areas 
coastal areas, former industrial areas, saw the biggest uh, leaps in claimants. Um, but, but as I say, I think the political narrative around universal credit is that it's delivered well uh, during the pandemic and the design of it is broadly a good thing. Uh, evidence we've done, and this evidence here challenges some of those assumptions. It does pick up on some of the positives quite rightly that some claimants are experiencing with universal credit, but it does challenge some of those assumptions. And I just wanna talk through some of that. But one thing I would say is that we've done work in the past and others, which really has brought out that the big issues that claimants have are around the frequency of payment monthly away from say fortnightly or weekly as some claimants were used to. And also there was a bit in the evidence uh, of concern around it going to one member of the household and the implications that might have have, um, for the power dynamics between men and women and the independence, particularly financial independence of women. And it's interesting that that doesn't necessarily come through those two issues there don't come that strongly through this work um, on couples and universal credit, which I think is, is, is quite interesting. Um, but as I say, I think some of the uh, research found here does challenge some of the assumptions behind the design elements of universal credit. The first is around simplicity. And of course, research we've done at Bright Blue and the department's done suggests that the rolling together of six out of work in work benefits um, into a kind of single taper rate would help claimants understand more the implications of uh, increased hours and what that would do to their overall income. And also the idea that that simplicity would lead to less engagement with different agencies and departments because you have uh, now one super benefit rather than six individual ones interacting with different departments. Um, uh, however, it doesn't seem to be the case from this research uh, that for couples that that single taper rate really is providing clarity on the kind of income effects of changing work patterns. Um, and indeed, I, from the research, I seem to suggest it seemed to be suggesting that um, sometimes the complexity for couples is putting people off from increasing their hours. And of course, some people were reassured um, when they left UC because of uh, perhaps some of the complexities involved. Uh, and it, it seems that some people are worried about uh, the withdrawal of income as they increase their hours and the loss of entitlements and that comes through. So it, it seems that the, you know, the guiding principle by universal credit, one of which is simplicity, isn't really being um, experienced by couples in the way that perhaps the department uh, previously envisaged. Um, the second is around employment incentives, which I found very interesting which is obviously the assumption is that a single clear taper rate would show to people the benefits of uh, working additional hours on top of um, conditionality arrangements being in place to encourage certain claimants to increase their hours and in their income. The sort of lesson that's coming through this research is that actually uh, claimants and couples seem to be responding to, uh, it seems to be factors outside of that which are influencing their uh, desire to work uh, more hours or not. Um, and this obviously challenges the government's assumptions behind a single taper rate improving work incentives. And it also challenges the big policy choice that the government have made recently, which is instead of keeping the £20 weekly uplift to instead 
um, reduce the taper rate. But of course, if this evidence seemed to be suggesting that people are not really necessarily responding that strongly, particularly couples, to that single taper rate, it does make you wonder whether it will have the desired effect of improving work incentives and really help with the bigger issue that comes through the research, which is uh, inadequate income, which, you know, the uplift was helping much more people with that. I would say, though, I did find it slightly um, contradictory across the evidence um, in terms of uh, the observations between two earner couples and one earner couples, because, of course, the narrative from two earner couples was that the taper rate didn't seem to have a huge impact on whether people decided to work more hours or not. But the lesson, the kind of message that I was getting through from one earner couples was that actually the entitlements were having an impact or the fear of the loss of entitlements were having an impact on whether people worked more hours or not. So I think there's just, you know, uh, I'm, I'm not, I don't think this is uh, necessarily um, something which is deliberately done or an error by researchers, but it's just interesting to know the overall message here, which is, are, are the design elements of UC in, in terms of the work allowance, the taper rate, are they having a huge impact on people's decision to work more hours or let fewer hours, or are they not? I just, I've, I found a slight sort of, uh, for two earners and one earner couples, a slightly different message, uh, and it'd be good just to have a bit more clarification on that. I think the third issue that came through was work coaches and previous bright blue work uh, that we did a couple of years ago showed for actually a lot of claimants that we interviewed that work coaches were one of the most important and popular parts of universal credit. That kind of one-to-one -one engagement um, uh, was valued a lot by claimants. And of course, that was a time when we did the interviews when the caseloads of UC work work coaches were a lot lower as a result of fewer people being on them. What's interesting here and the message that I'm getting, of course, it's not the same for everybody. And some people report having positive experiences with work coaches. But the overall message I'm getting is that actually people didn't want to engage that much with their work coaches, didn't really get huge amounts of value from it. Um, uh, and I think this sort of points to a wider philosophical or political point about the benefit system, which is, you know, a lot of people um, uh, have sort of really trumpeted the idea of personal intensive support for claimants beyond just financial transfers as important as a kind of, you know, a sort of relational state, not just a transactional state. Um, and those sorts of people have been, I suppose, quite averse to things like the universal basic income because they feel it's sort of policymakers saying, here's the money and then we'll wash our hands of it. You know, we won't have conditionality and things like that. We'll just give it to claimant. But then you don't have that personal intent, intensive relationship or support. Um, but this evidence, interestingly, on balance seems to suggest actually that sort of more hands-off, non-conditionality, almost UBI-esque approach might be something which is a little bit more welcomed by claimants than the sort of personal intensive support from work coaches. That was, you know, I apologise if I've got that wrong, but that was perhaps some of the implications I got from, from the research. Fourthly, just on childcare, um, I was actually struck just by the aversion to particularly amongst one earner couples to using paid childcare when the children was particularly older in the preschool years. Um, 
uh, and um, I just I, I found that quite interesting because obviously this does raise important implications not only for poverty as the evidence is 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 you know quite striking that two earner couples are much less likely to be in poverty than one earner couples, but also for long term children's outcomes as well because we know from the evidence that participation in high quality childcare from about the age of two is good particularly for deprived children in terms of their cognitive and social development. And so I, I do think it raises questions about, um, particularly for beyond the age of two, what sort of uh, policies are in place, even, you know, in terms of compulsory hours, um, a certain number of hours for participation in childcare for, uh, for children considering the educational uh, benefits. But also, I think when children are younger, just what's coming through is, um, you know, actually increased hours or increased income are not necessarily the most important thing to people, but actually have spending time with children, particularly in those first few years. Um, and uh, we all know that, you know, the maternity paternity pay system is the statutory amount that you get is, is measly, it's, it's very low. Uh, and the support that you can get from benefits as well may not be uh, well, isn't adequate enough to support often one earner couples. So I think there's, uh, you know, I think there's a wider debate here about children very young. Um, for those parents who want to stay at home, the support that's in place through universal credit, but also through the leave system. And then thinking more broadly about the role of childcare, not just as a service for working parents, but as a critical part of the education system as well. Um, and then the final point, which um, which Fran was talking about the, at the end, was just what really struck me was, uh, and I don't know if this is a sort of the pandemic has accelerated this thinking, but really the prioritisation on stability of income and the prioritisation of work-life balance above, for example, maximising hours and income. And I, I just think that is really interesting and, and, and challenges both thinking on the right and the left. On the right, you know, this idea that we're all rational actors just responding to uh, monetary incentives, um, you know, challenges some of that sort of um, uh, free market, public uh, market-based thinking. But it also challenges perhaps some people on the left who have championed for a long time increasing work, um, uh, access to work and the number of hours in work as a way of fighting poverty. And the evidence is clear on that, that that would help. But obviously that is perhaps uh, conflicting with some of the preferences that people have around the, 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 um, uh, the way that they want to conduct their lives and the happiness that they get from that. And I, I think that's, that's quite interesting and a challenge both to sort of prevailing left and right wing, right wing thinking. So in conclusion, um, you know, I think the kind of policy implications of this research, the first is this sort of big debate about whether it's best to go for a taper rate rather than maintain the weekly uplift. Um, my, my feeling is this evidence suggests that actually the adequacy and stability of income is very important and therefore the weekly up uplift uh, maybe have been more effective. Issues around childcare, particularly uh, being paid in arrears is an ongoing issue and Franz just talked about it and, and, and uh, raised issues which were raised in the select committee today. Um, but also how we create that support for people when children are very young and then thinking about uh, the role of formal even compulsory childcare when children are uh, a little bit older.
Um, and then I think the final thing is just, you know, I, I think there is a shift in attitudes, uh, which I've seen from survey evidence on public attitudes towards social security. It seems to, in recent years, become more generous. Uh, I think the pandemic has shown that our lot in life is not necessarily just as a product of our hard work or agency, but luck and sometimes brute luck. Uh, and the pandemic has showed that very strongly. Uh, and I hope that does feed into, particularly on the center right, uh, a recognition. And I think it is to some extent, uh, a recognition that, um, you know, you do need a strong social security system to uh, keep maintain support for a market-based system, but also maintain participation in a mar market-based system uh, as well. So um, really, really interesting um, research project, I think adds a lot to the accumulating evidence on UC. Great, Ryan, thank you very much indeed. I mean, those are really uh, insightful comments and I, you raised some really important issues there about childcare, early learning, and as you say, the balance between work and care in people's lives. Um, and these questions about childhood and how we integrate considerations about childhood and early child development. I think uh, we definitely want to come back to that in the discussion. So thank you very much. Ryan. Now, Kate, I'm going to uh, ask you to come in if, if you would as well and with your comments and then we'll open up. We've got about six or seven questions, so plenty to discuss. Thank you. Great. Thanks, Nick. Uh, thanks very much for having me here to comment. Um, before sharing my comments, I just wanted to congratulate the research team uh, on this amazing research project that's generated such rich data, um, providing such comprehensive insights uh, to inform policy. And I also more specifically wanted to congratulate Marsha and Rita, who are the ones who interviewed the couples. Um, I think just to recognise how skilled it is to conduct interviews about such um, intimate and personal aspects of people's lives and sort of the, the sensitivity skill that that requires to earn people's trust and confidence. Um, so yeah, I just wanted to recognise that. Um, I'll split my reflections into two parts. Um, first, I wanted to comment uh, uh, briefly on a couple of the key concepts in this report um, that it made me think about more deeply when reading it. Uh, and secondly, I wanted to uh, share a few reflections about um, the methods of the study and pose a few questions that might carry through into the um, Q&A. So first, in terms of um, key concepts or ideas, um, so the first one maybe sort of uh, very clearly and as, as what's been picked up in the presentations and, and Ryan's comments as well, but I suppose to explicitly re recognise the contribution that this research makes in terms of understanding decision making, um, both um, academically, but also in relation to policy making. How do we think about decision making within households? Um, and I think what this report is really uh, pushing us to do and is, is adding to this debate to make us think about how we can move beyond what um, some people call a, a rational economic man model of decision making and think instead how do we think about more broadly how various social and cultural contexts matter uh, when people are navigating uh, work, care, social security. Um, and I, I find it striking the, the report discusses the universal credits um, theory of change. Um, maybe this will come up in the Q&A as well and sort of how maybe that's not um, appropriate an appropriate way of understanding how UC operates in these couples lives um, perhaps instead we need to think about how UC sort of fits within this more complicated landscape of people's lives rather than leading it um, there are a few findings I'll just cite that really 
struck me in relation to this um, that maybe the research team would like to talk more about. Um, so this has come up already, but the finding about how households with preschool age children um, tended to show a strong preference for children being cared for in, in the home rather than formal childcare. And relatedly what this told us about contemporary gender roles and how that's actually challenging or moving forward sort of um, older older work um, that relates to, to this area. I thought that was really striking. Um, I think secondly, the finding about how um, ironically, some couples cited the option to work fewer hours uh, without being heavily financially penalized by universal credit as a positive aspect of, of, the, of the benefit of the, of the policy design, um, which is obviously, obviously sort of counter to one of the kind of overarching intended aims of the UC, but I think that's really interesting to understand how that is operating, that, that decisions being made in people's, in couples' lives. Um, and the third finding I just raised in sight um, that I thought was um, striking and, and very upsetting is how in the report there's testimony from couples who were deciding uh, to go ahead with having a third child, um, despite knowing that the two-child limit would be applied to them. Um, and in the excerpts from the interviews that cited couples talking about the sort of um, firmly held and often sort of the moral nature of the decisions that they were making when they were choosing to go ahead with this third pregnancy and sort of how jarring that is with the assumption that the two child limit would offer sort of a, a financial um, structure with which to make that sort of decision. It's just kind of is so um, stark when you look at that example there of, of how we need a better account of, of decision making. Um, so I suppose I'd um, ask the research team as well whether they have or whether they are planning to develop um, an alternative theory of change to challenge or kind of complement the existing theory of change that exists uh, for universal credit. Um, secondly, sort of substantively, I wanted to make a more specific point about care. Um, and of course, it's very visible in this research project. Um, care in relation to children. Um, and we've heard a lot about childcare and childcare decision making. Um, but I was also really struck reading the report um, how care is really important in the couple in the context of couples themselves. Um, and so I mean this in the sense that um, so in part the longitudinal design meant that researchers could view and recognize coupledom as something that's dynamic. Um, so it's not static. Uh, relationships ended in the course of the project, um, some relationships reformed. Um, and I think what then was very powerful is that then the researchers could show us the stress and the burden that universal credit played in these couples' relationships and, and some couples citing universal credit as a factor that was leading or playing a part in their relationship breakdown. So I think this recognition of what care might mean very broadly when we're thinking about universal credit in people's lives it's it's obviously much broader than just income level it's much broader than just how um ch the child care aspect of it works um so then i'll just finish um with three very short uh kind of key methods i suppose reflections but really questions um that i'd sort of post the research team um and I, just very briefly as well, I thought it was very effective in the report and um, the long report. I think it's really fantastic. The research teams share in depth um, sort of cases of the different couples. And so by doing it like that, rather than showing us kind of cross cutting themes, we can see the complexity playing out within these individual couples within these households. And we've sort of shown that up front in, in how the findings have been 
uh, written, which I thought was uh, very effective. Um, so three short key methods points. Um, I'm always I, I'm interested to hear more about the ethics of interviewing couples. I suppose there's key decisions about confidentiality and anonymity when you're entering into a household, the sort of what you think you owe or maybe what you're trying to navigate between interviewing couples separately and together. Um, I'd be really interested to hear more about that. Um, the second methodological point was I thought it was really interesting that the report um, seemed to take the sort of decision or stance of researching through COVID rather than about COVID. And so um, Marsha and um, uh, Marsha talked about moving to telephone interviews um, to, to deal with the COVID context. Um, but I'd be interested to hear more about the kind of interpretation of the data that allowed you to still center your key themes of looking at couples, care, work, universal credit. And it seemed like that was happening sort of within the pandemic rather than the pandemic becoming the overarching story or thing that was going on there. Um, when obviously a lot of research at the moment is um, being totally like derailed or refocused. And so hearing a bit more about what that looked like for your couple's lives um, as you came back to them to interview them again. Um, and the final methodological point I wanted to make was about the longitudinal design um, being two years apart um, and thinking about the types of insights that this generates, I thought was very interesting. So like I just said, uh, being able to see, for example, um, couple breakdown or formation sort of strain or success over a long period of time. Um, but I suppose you can um, contrast that with much more short term longitudinal designs. Um, so I guess I'm thinking about work like um, John Hills and colleagues at, at Case, who in the mid 2000s um, surveyed uh, households weekly to understand what was happening with their income. Um, David Young, who was, uh, is at Bath at IPR, his PhD was doing uh, much more frequent financial diaries. And so I suppose my final sort of question or comment was if you had more resources or access, um, what would you have wanted to maybe add or, or differ in terms of complementary data collection at points in time to kind of enrich this even even further. Uh, I'll stop there. Thank you. Thank you very much. Great. Thank you very much indeed, Kate. Um, those are excellent um, questions. And uh, I, I completely concur with um, the remark you made at the beginning of, of your contribution that, um, you know, this research is testament to the professional research skills that, you know, the, 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 the very important qualitative research skills that um, the team have and the sensitivity that's required in doing this work um, to generate the kind of insights and evidence that it does. So um, thank you very much, Kate. And you, make, you raised some very important methodological issues there at the end. I, I, um, I perhaps we could ask the team to come to those a bit later on and perhaps with Jane on the call too. Um, I don't know if David Young is with us, but um, uh, Jane was his lead supervisor and so would perhaps be able to reflect on that point you made, Kate, about the different um, intervals for longitudinal research design. Um, but let's go, let's go perhaps to the, um, uh, to, to the research team then just to, just to respond to some of these questions. We've got quite a few in the, in the chat. I mean, so uh, in the Q and A I should say. So please do just sort of, sort of pull some of these out. But I think there's, there's a lot of questions about the gender split. Um, about both, you know, decisions about UC and about work and care. There's a lot of questions um, about the relationship between UC and the labour market, the insecurity in the labour market, um, unpredictable employment, gig economy employment, and so on, uh, and the relationship between, you know, insecure employment and the need for security. Uh, and then we've got obviously a, a set of very specific questions about things like um, 
the, the, the taper, the passporting questions um, uh, and those issues, uh, and then a wide range of questions about children, in particular childcare, the ones that Ryan raised, but also Kate at the end there, on, uh, on the two child limits and um, you know, what we've seen recently with the increase in poverty in families with three and more children. Um, so a whole bunch of questions. Perhaps if I could ask um, Rita first to uh, come back to some of, some of those um, to kick us off. Oh, wow, yes, there's a lot there, isn't there? There's a lot there, so, uh, <laughs> so please, please take this, uh, you know, don't feel you have to respond to every single point in, 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 in all detail, but if you could pick up on some of them, that would be great. So. Yeah, I'm trying to see if I can sort of um, look at them in a sort of more holistic way. I think um, both it, it sort of plays to the methods that we use um, and just how this research yeah. is conducted and how policy is designed is, um, it's just starting with the people that you're you're targeting the policies on is having a like really clear understanding of um, of their lives and therefore how they're likely re to respond to these policies. I think um, I think a lot of our findings reflect the way in which universal credit is has been designed by economists really it's it's very much based on um and it's been referred to as a sort of rational economic model but this idea that people respond um in almost a, a sort of um automated way to to work incentives or financial incentives and and we all know that that's not the case we, we all have complex lives um, but particularly um, families with children that the kind of social and cultural context um, I think is just um, so important to that um, which is often ignored I think when universal credit was initially being designed um, the, there was some contact with stakeholders but there was very little um, contact with with actual claimants and the, the 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 system itself was never piloted in real life and you'd think for such a, a huge radical redesign of the social security system that there would have been some piloting to actually find out how these changes were affecting people in their everyday lives and it was never done it's it's almost like it was a huge social experiment that we're only now just kind of discovering um, how it's impacting on people so I think it does tell us a lot about the need to um, to speak to people who, who are actually claiming these benefits and having to live through it um, I think that's one thing and then I, I suppose the other thing is change over time really one of the things that our research was able to do um, that Kate referred to is is look back over a period so again a lot of evaluation research that's done um, by the likes of the DWP focuses on the policies rather than on the people um, and I'm not sure the expression that that Kate used but um, I think that's right she said researching through COVID rather than about it and it's a similar thing we weren't we didn't start with universal credit. We started with our couples and then universal credit is clearly a big part of their lives in the same way as COVID became. But, but, but they were what we were following in our research rather than necessarily um, these policies. So I think that's the power of longitudinal qualitative research. I think that, um, that you know, profiling, economic modeling just cannot reach these kinds of issues. Don't know if Jane would like to add to that, possibly. Thank you very much. It's really interesting comments. I've been going over Kate's comment about an alternative theory of change, actually, because I think that is 
really um, interesting and important. Um, and some of the psychological work, which focuses on things like autonomy and relationships and um, connections with other people, it seems to me offer a, a, a different way into thinking about um, what makes a difference to people. So I think there are ways in which we might think differently. We hadn't gone down that route of thinking of an alternative theory of um, change, but it's an interesting idea. And I think we might take that one up. While I've got the floor, can I go back to a couple of Ryan's points? Yes. Um, lots of good points there, Ryan. But one of the things you said was we hadn't talked much about single payments and monthly payments. Um, we covered that much more in our first report. So we haven't covered it so much this time round, but we did have a lot to say about it when we looked at it the first time round. And your second really interesting and important question about is the message a bit mixed on whether these levers are working or not? <laughs> And it kind of goes back to Fran's comment that we're not trying to understand whether they're working or not. We're trying to understand the assumptions behind them and how they relate to people's behavior. And I think the answer is it's quite complicated. The levers don't work in the same way for everyone. So you can't just say this lever will do that and people will respond in that way. The way in which the lever might work will be very different relating to um, people's different circumstances and situations. Um, and the, the, the nature of change, the dynamics of the change and how quickly um, their situations are changing. So I think there isn't perhaps a simple answer to that question about whether the policy levers work or not. Thank you, Jane. Can I just uh, jump in and ask the team to, to address a couple of specific points that have come up in the Q&A? So Elaine Kempson raising questions about passporting um, and how, you know, not taken on board in the initial design of UC, um, raised since by the Social Security Advisory Committee. I mean, perhaps, Frank, could you, could you address that one on passporting? Uh, and then there's a couple of questions, Dee and Ruth and others, on self-employment and whether people uh, prefer self-employment or whether uh, self-employment is problematic in the UC. Um, perhaps, Rita, you could say something about that. Um, and then, Marsha, just if you would, I know you've done a lot of work on childcare in particular, and. Um, responding perhaps to some of Ryan's points, but others have raised. Um, I mean, is, is one of the answers here to, to take child, the childcare element out of the UC and, and put it across into supply funding like the early years entitlement, uh, or to find some other means of making childcare support predictable um, uh, within the universal credit. So, you know, not fluctuating, not as responsive to individual. I mean, you know, thinking about, for example, the, the tax relief for uh, higher, higher earners or middle and higher earners, a uh, very straightforward tax relief system compared to the much more complex means tested system for universal credit charge elements. So I just wonder if you could say something about that too. But Frank, could you, yeah, could you have a, uh, perhaps a go at some the issues that Elaine raises first? Thank you. Thank you very much, um, Nick. And uh, also thank you to Ryan and um, Kate for very useful comments. Can everybody hear me all right? Because I appear to be freezing a bit on the screen. Okay. Um, I just wanted to come back quickly on uh, another couple of comments from our, um, from our speakers, if that's uh, okay. I mean, one, and I don't want to sound too defensive, <laughs> But um, uh, we did do a blog, um, Ryan, about universal credit and the pandemic, because, of course, um, you're absolutely right to say that it had a good pandemic. Um, and uh, that was very much emphasised by lots of people, including the government. Uh, but it was a different animal. Um, it had an uplift. Um, but not only that, but conditionality was suspended. Some of the deductions were suspended. 
um, there were lots of things that were different about universal credit in the pandemic. So uh, whilst you're absolutely right, um, uh, th that was one thing. And the other thing is that um, the uh, particular thing that was emphasized by the government was automation. Well, you could have automated other systems. <laughs> um, it just happened that they automated universal credit when they introduced it. But I mean, the automation is, is something that could happen to other systems, although I think the government would argue that automating one system together is easier than separate ones. Um, uh, we did also do um, talking about um, uh, researching universal credit through COVID rather than uh, about COVID. We did do a separate report on the uh, universal credit uplift um, uh, as well. And we also took part in COVID realities, uh, which was the um, report that has just been um, uh, released this week, but it was basically a collection of 14 different research projects uh, researching through COVID the realities of low-income people's lives. And we swapped uh, quite a lot of insights and, and lessons uh, about that. So just, uh, just to say those things, but passported benefits, I so completely agree uh, with Elaine Kempson, who of course um, we've all learnt a huge amount from in terms of her writings and research. Um, passported benefits was something which was not uh, thought through in terms of um, how uh, universal credit would affect that. And what eventually happened in my reading of the situation is that when the DWP realised that they couldn't sort it out, um, they then said it was other departments' responsibilities. So um, free school meals, for example, uh, was the responsibility of the, the Department for Education and so on and so on. Uh, so no, it hasn't been sorted out. There are various different solutions now. Um, some of them um, actually talk about uh, a particular income level and therefore with the fluctuations that we've talked about in terms of people's earnings, people can go in and out of entitlement. Uh, so I think I'm right in saying that we had one person, for example, who said, um, you know, I've got to hang on and wait till I um, till something happens before I can actually have um, uh, free uh, glasses, I think it was. Um, so anyway, passported benefits, I completely agree, has not been sorted out. Um, uh, free school meals has got another uh, kind of solution, which is a particular earnings threshold, uh, which is not monthly. Um, so it, 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 it's a bit of a mess, to be honest. Um, and of course, the other thing that could have happened was council tax benefit brought into universal credit and passported, and they decided not to do that. Um, and so council tax benefit is actually kept outside universal credit rather than being passported. Um, but because it's been left to local authorities to do different rules for council tax reduction, as it's usually called now, or council tax support, um, that also means that because sometimes those are in banded income um, groups, um, that what happens to universal credit um, and earnings can therefore take people out of help with council tax entirely in a kind of jump that may be, mean uh, a big, uh, bigger taper rate than universal credit would impose. Yeah, that's a really important point, Fran. Thank you very much. Um, Marsha, can I ask you to address some of the childcare points? And there's a specific question from Sharon White, uh, right about um, what was the propor highest proportion of men who were doing unpaid care uh, rather than paid work during the study as well. I don't know if you're able to touch on that, but um, uh, yeah, plenty of questions on childcare, Marsha. Yeah, from our research, it was really 
clear just how um, childcare costs, reclaiming those for universal credit was just very complicated and um, just completely inadequate really for families. So um, yeah, I think just families much preferred the government funded free childcare, but it was also clear that, that has its own issues and problems and that it's um, families often having to pay top up. So it wasn't fully free and for low income families that could be quite significant. Um, and there's, there's wider issues I think as well with just how we need to think about and view, view childcare. Some of the families had children with quite, um, you know, disabilities or, you know, complicated behaviours and who really didn't settle well in nursery. So, you know, they, 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 they found that, you know, nursery provision, you know, just wasn't really right for their children. So they think there's a kind of wider issue that needs to be thought about, you know, in families when they, when they do need to, you know, care for their children at home and how they're supported to, to do that. Um, so yeah, I think that more wider discussion um, about the tax-free childcare. I think that could be a simpler system. I didn't really. Um, I don't know if any of the rest of the team have more more views on views on that. But yeah, that you know that is one of the options. And other people have talked about things like um, things going on in Northern Ireland about better support for the upfront costs of you know childcare, which is a barrier in universal credit um, and and things like that. So yeah, there probably there are some things which could be done which might make it better in the in the current system um and on the um on the numbers whether well yeah with the the, the men doing more of the, the childcare at home i thought that was really interesting um I've, um yeah and that kind of struck me i think that's something that happened with more of the more of the people that reta interviewed actually but just reading back over some of the you know cases and and everything i think it is it is interesting and a change and yeah i think it's um um, something which probably could do with more more research into looking at how that's playing out in terms of relationships and families. Great, thank you very much, Marsha. Uh, Rita, can I turn to you now? Just some, uh, there were some questions on on self employment as I mentioned from um, R Ruth at CPAG and and uh, D Lynch. Perhaps if we could pick up on uh, that. yes, self employment. I mean, we didn't have huge numbers of people um, who were self employed, but those who did have earnings from self-employment. Um, again, just the burden of having to upload um, evidence of um, income and expenditure every month um, and the kind of scrutiny as well of those claims. So um, this is a manual process. Um, often um, the, uh, the submissions were scrutinized by work coach, so they weren't automatically accepted. Um, and again, it was kind of added stress and um, administrative requirements for claimants. That, uh, so um, uh, the other issue um, was just the kind of lack of expertise among um, work coaches in terms of advising people about um, becoming self-employed, the impact of the minimum income floor, what that would mean for people and so on. Um, so people who had been self-employed during our research, a lot of them, again, gave up on it um, and um, took up jobs or, or just um, ceased altogether. So it, it's, I don't think it's been at all thought through um, how self-employed people um, actually engage with the universal credit um, system of monthly assessment and what's involved. Thank you, Rita. There's a very specific question from Marilyn Howard, um, which is about, um, uh, one of the findings from the one owner couple seems to be that people switch between the lead carer and the impact of one partner's earnings reducing the UC of the other. How was the single UC payment affected by this as claimants are encouraged to nominate the main carer's account? 
i.e. did the nominated account change when partners switched roles? So I suppose there's a, so, so the, the question of the implications on the single parent of switching between the main carer and the main single parent. Yeah, we, um, there was there's very little change in which account received the universal credit payment between phases one and two, and there were very few joint accounts. So generally speaking, it was the same um, bank account that regardless of whether um, the, uh, the parents switched lead care roles or not. Um, and it did tend to be women more than men that were the recipients of universal credit. So it tended to be their income that fluctuated as the universal credit payment went up and down, uh, irrespective, as I say, of what else was going on. Yeah. Okay. And then just um, just a couple, I mean, just from Jeff Wood, um, you know, this relationship between the labour market and UC that in many ways UC designed to support kind of, you know, the, the UK's very flexible labour market, um, you know, re real-time assessment, all those sorts of issues. And, and I suppose what Jeff is saying is here, you've got the sort of insecurities in universal credit sort of magnifying or amplifying insecurity in the labour market, rather than being designed to sort of integrate effectively to support families through um, uh, what is by, certainly in, in comparative terms, a labour market that has a lot more uh, flexibility than say you know more stable employment patterns that you get uh, in other uh, particularly European countries um, I just wonder whether that's you know whether you might say something about that Rita the sort of how well universal credit works to sort of dampen some of the labour market insecurity or to amplify it. Um, yes it was interesting that, that people who tended to like universal credit best and could make it work for them tended to be those who had the most stable um, earnings. So this is why um, often like single earner couples where the earnings of the earner were actually the same from one month to the next, um, tended to work best. It gave people um, security, um, the uh, recipient of universal credit got the same amount, generally speaking, most months. Um, so, and those type of jobs tend to be slightly better jobs, um, salaried jobs, and um, the, uh, the, the very kind of work that, um, as you say, Nick, that universal credit is meant to kind of help uh, people adjust to. So zero hour contracts, um, irregular hours, that was where people struggled the most because you've got two sets of, of, um, of change, changing uh, income. So you've got wages that are changing. Um, and then you've also got universal credit changing and like hugely dynamic system that's really hard to predict. And of course, people only know a week before they get paid how much they're going to get in universal credit. So that it might be the same with wages. They don't necessarily know if they're on zero hour contracts, how many hours they're going to be working. So, um, so definitely the um the system was amplifying um rather than helping to ameliorate that system so working kind of counter to how universal credit was meant to work certainly thank you Peter. well we've got we've got about five minutes left so i i just want to allow people to jump in with any final comments i, I can see uh jane and there's just one question from rochelle which uh, i think we haven't answered which is do you think Black Lives Matter visualizing institutional failures influence people's understanding of universal credit, i.e. giving them a language to express universal credit service gap? So the impact of Black Lives Matter last year on uh, uh, people's ability to sort of to, to identify and express service gaps in UC, particularly presumably related to race and ethnicity. Um, 
but uh, if, if anybody can pick that question up just in the final sort of round of things. Jane, I'll start with you, if I may. Yes, thanks very much, Nick. I wasn't going to pick up on that because I was following on from the previous comment about the volatilities in the labour market and universal credit. And that, I think, is the big policy trade-off in a means-tested system. How responsive should you be um, and how do you balance that against the need for security? And over what time period is it appropriate to do that? And as we move, as we have a, as we built this mass means-tested system, that is really fundamental to thinking about the design This, you know, what time period um, and how responsive and how secure, as well as issues of adequacy, of course. And it kind of picks up Kate's last point about time periods. Um, and actually, I thought when she said it, it was almost like a, a great prompt for us because we've got a follow-on study, Kate, <laughs> um, that we're going to be um, carrying on. Um, we've got some funding from Aberdeen Financial Fairness Trust um, to do a more um, um, detailed and more granulated time period study. So we're going to still be following people on universal credit. Indeed, some of our people who've been involved in this study will be involved in the next one. And we're going to try and collect money on um, information on their changes week by week, um, fortnight by fortnight, month by month. So we're going to get that much more detailed. Um, and we hope David will be working with us on that as well. So Rita's going to be taking the lead on that and Marsha. And just while I'm talking, I'd add to your, you, Kate, you also started, Nick, you said about the sensitivity of the interviewers and I think that was really really um you know we benefited so much from having the skills of Rita and Marsha in this project and I think it also comes through in the account so this is an encouragement for people to read our report because it has these case study accounts in them which are very very telling um which give a really strong picture of people's lives and um what happens to them as they're trying to navigate these changes um and again it's written really sensitively drawing on the case studies that Rita and Marsha put together so um and that's a plug for everyone to read to look for our new study and to read the report <laughs> thank you thank you jane um we do just have a few minutes so I, I, perhaps if if anybody has got a particular point they haven't raised or would like to come back in on any of the discussion just raise your hand yeah ryan yeah so um and, and thank you for the um answers and the clarification about your research uh fran and jane that's 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 very useful um the question on self-employment i found quite interesting um and we've done some work around um self-employed people in low-income households um, and, you know, despite the low income, most people prefer to be self-employed and employees because of the flexibility and freedom that's given. Um, the model of the minimum income floor is obviously that um, uh, it lasts for 12 months. And then the assumption is your business will then grow, that you don't need that cushion. Mm. Um, I think that's a flawed assumption by the DWP around people on self who are self-employed on low income I don't think it's that they're building this business that's going to grow into something huge over time and actually their income is often volatile over long periods of time um, so that's why we've said beyond that 12 month holiday where the minimum income floor does not uh, apply so therefore if your income is low you get your full entitlement to benefits that there should be at the discretion discretion of work coaches where months, there are months where your income might drop, often that's a seasonal thing because of the sector that you're working in, that the minimum income floor, maybe for another 12 months, but at any point in time, whilst you're self-employed, um, you can drop that minimum income floor requirement. The government has kind of introduced a version of that during the pandemic. So beyond the 12 months, work coaches can at their discretion offer the minimum income floor suspension for many more months. I think that should be continued 
more generally, considering what we know about self-employed people on their incomes, that it's not that they're growing this business that's going to be sustainable and profitable. I mean, some some of them will, uh, but most of them, um, uh, it's not like that, and it's volatile for long periods of time. So that would be my response on the self-employment thing. Great, thank you, Ryan. And that obviously raises very interesting questions about minimum incomes and basic incomes and uh, guarantees of secure and stable income as well. So, um, you know, and it, it seems to me there are a lot of further questions there on kind of labour market questions and their relationship to social security that, that, that can be explored. Jane mentioned we've got a new study uh, that, that we're undertaking, so we're very pleased about that. That will kick off shortly. Uh, but I just want to finish the session today. We're coming up now to half past 12 by firstly thanking Ryan and Kate in particular for responding to the report. Really welcome your contributions and, and many thanks for taking part today. Um, to, to thank Jane uh, as well for, for being the principal investigator leading this work over the last few years. It's been incredibly important for us. And, um, and then, of course, to say thank you, Rita, Marsha and Fran in particular for your presentations and for the research. Uh, I would just encourage everybody to go to the IPR site to download the report. As Jane was saying, it's, got, it's a very rich uh, report with lots of material and the evidence is very rich and just as Rita today was present giving evidence to the Social Security Select Committee we do hope that uh, this evidence can be used by policymakers, by by MPs, by, by, by the charitable sector, by others who are scrutinising, debating, seeking to reform public policy in this area because it's an incredibly rich and important uh, data set or set of research findings to inform that kind of discussion and debate. So thank you very much indeed, everybody. Thank you for participating. Please do stay in touch with IPR's work. If you've followed us today, uh, do uh, come online to our site, get our newsletter, all those sorts of things, follow us on social media, uh, and we'll stay in touch with you accordingly. So thanks very much indeed, everybody. Thanks to our participants. Thanks for watching. Thank you.